Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host, Hilary Milnes, and on today's episode, Aman Advani, the co-founder and CEO of Ministry of Supply, spoke about the future of technical fabric, how storytelling helps his brand stand out, and why you can't take emotion out of fashion. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. So, you know, we worked together back when I was, you know, a reporter in Boston. You guys launched your brand out of MIT. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, okay. about seven years ago now. Yeah, great. So can you kind of explain, um, you know, where the idea for Ministry of Supply came from? Obviously, your big selling point is this technical fabric that, that works better than, than traditional fabrics that, that men are used to wearing in their suits. Um, and so whenever you launched the brand, you know, how did that idea all come together? And also, where was the like state of, of technical fabric? Was it something people were used to talking about at the time? Yeah, it's, we love talking about the kind of story of, of why we started this company in the first place because it's it, we we met while I happened to be at business school. My partner was an undergrad at, at MIT Engineering, and we're always careful to not lump this in with kind of a whiteboard exercise where we saw there's a gap in the market we should seize this, but rather <laughs> right, but rather kind of the opposite where where we were almost uh, doing this quietly. Uh, you know, I was a consultant for four years prior to business school, getting on a plane every Monday morning, every Thursday night, getting off a plane. And, uh, and you're really putting clothing to the test, right? You're waking up at 6 a.m. in a hotel room to get the hotel iron out and figure out how that works, go mm-hmm. to the dry cleaner every Sunday. Uh, you know, at 7 or 8 o'clock, we'd get back from the client site. We would take our, you know, business clothes off and put our gym clothes on and then go back to the ho- hotel lobby and keep working. Mm-hmm. And so there was this kind of need building up to get rid of all of those burdensome feelings of stiff, stuffy clothes, dry cleaners, you know, iron, stuff like this. So I quietly would sew the soles of running socks into the soles of my dress socks as mm. this tiny little edge to take kind of the performance of the gym, the comfort of those socks, and build it into my every Monday, every day, Monday through Friday. So I come to MIT in 2011. I meet my partner, Gihan, and uh, he happens to be doing the same thing with dress shirts. And so all of a sudden I say, wait, wait, there's something bigger here, right? This idea of bringing together technology and fashion, the idea of form and function coexisting transcends clothing. It transcends you know, gender. It, it, it's so big and so important. How can we make this you know, the next wave of what happens in, at a macro level in, in fashion? And that's mm-hmm. why we started the company. Right. Uh, and so where do you find like partners that are that were willing to work with 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 you on a pretty different idea in terms of how clothing would be manufactured and the types of fabrics would go into it. It sounds like it might have been a bit of an uphill battle. Yeah, oh my goodness. Uh, mm-hmm. th- there were so many different challenges. I think when we thought about this idea of category creation, right, it was, we called it performance professional. It was this big, you know, new enterprise in, in fashion. And uh, and we thought that just meant making a new product, right? As simple as just taking these fabrics and putting them into this garment and understanding exactly how your body expels heat, odor, moisture, pressure, strain. These are things we were good at as engineers. It turns out creating a, a new category is, is an ecosystem, right? It's Like you said, it's partners, factories that have no experience, right? You can either go to a gym clothing manufacturer who can work with super stretchy technical fabrics um, but has no idea how to make a dress shirt, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, let alone kind of a fitted garment like a dress or a blouse. 
Or you can go to a, a, a clothing a factory that makes these garments but has no idea how to use anything with anything less than kind of a broadcloth feel to it. So we had to create, you know, investor base. We had to create a customer base that had to be educated on why form and function should coexist. At the time, uh, you alluded to earlier, what did it look like at the time? None of this existed. You mm. could not find a suit with an ounce of stretch. You could not find a dress shirt that... Uh, didn't hold sweat stains. You couldn't find, uh, you know, in, uh, in women's, you couldn't find anything that was even mildly functional. It was all fashion, fashion, fashion. And mm-hmm. so we had to create this ecosystem from scratch. Right. It's, it sounds like in the uh, time sense, this idea of like, you know, all the catchy phrases around it, like nine tonight and, you know, work to play, et cetera. Like people want to wear things from like the boardroom to the bar. Oh, like yeah. now you're yep. hearing all of that. And so how have you kind of monitored and, and kept up with where, the general industry, you know, having started the brand in 2012, has started to dabble in these, you know, types of clothing that can withstand an entire day and keep up with like the new way that people are working. Because I think that's kind of what the underlying idea is that it's it's not just about you know better performing clothing; it's about the the lifestyle around when and where people need you know, these clothing to work for them actually, you know, it has evolved too. Yeah, I think you're, you're right. And you hit on a point there that it has almost become ubiquitous to be talking at least at some degree about how clothing should be a little bit more than just fashion, right? It, mm-hmm. There's this extra layer of versatility as you're talking about. There's this extra layer of functionality. And so while that becomes more and more popular, our, our hope and goal as a company is to stay two steps ahead of it, kind of see what's coming next down the pipeline, um, and to continue setting that pace and setting that conversation so that we keep on pushing the direction of ultimately our goal as a company is to make people happy and comfortable, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's that broad and that simple. Uh, and, and how can clothing actually play such a big role in doing that? And so if we if we keep on pushing down that path and others follow suit, uh, everyone's happier. Right. And, and so... To that point, how did you introduce this idea to customers, Um, you know, in terms of like, you know, being at the beginning of this idea that technical fabric should be in more than just gym clothing? Was there like an education piece that needed to be worked in uh, to the brand story? And and how did you kind of get it off the ground and and start spreading the word? Yeah. So our our process, our namesake is it's a company called Ministry of Supply named after Q from the Bond films. And the premise of the whole thing is that Q is a real care. I mean, in real life, Charles Fraser Smith operated under the cover of Ministry of Supply. Q makes Bond look great, uh, but ready for absolutely anything. Mm-hmm. And that's the company's premise is, what is this problem statement? What does Bond need? What does our customer need in a given day? And so our, our kind of goal or premise as a company is very much in, in what we call quantified empathy. What do you need and how can we actually put that into our process? And so as it relates to education, which is your question and your point here, is that that's, that becomes critical. How did we actually solve a problem for you? How did we create a new opportunity for you? It becomes much more important than us talking about, you know, a percentage of, of, of you know, spandex in this garment, right, is, is irrelevant compared to what does this unlock for you, how, and if you care, why, mm-hmm. uh, that we can let the customer peel that onion back and understand the layers behind it. But education is by far the most important thing we've uh, we've we've valued and, and found important to, mm-hmm. to that customer. Right, and and anything and how the customers responded to the brand and the clothing when they were first trying it that that kind of surprised you. I think a lot of times there are clear opportunities to improve the way we dress, and and that comes up in in multiple ways. You know, that might be people want more sustainable clothing. They want clothing they feel, they can feel better about. But at the same time, like if anything, kind of takes away from multiple priorities like okay price like how can i afford this and the quality and how it feels and how it looks like how do you hit on all on all those cylinders at once yeah i mean clothing is still ultimately such a, an emotional business right i mean i think we we approach it so rationally as engineers by background and we think so much about you know even by I just told you quantified empathy right what a weird mm-hmm. thing to say when it comes to fashion 
Uh, what we find is, is and the reason we have six stores across the U.S. and we, we encourage people to go visit them is because none of this matters once you touch it and feel it. And once you put it on and you do the kind of stretch test, you walk around in it for a second, you get surprised to find out that it's all machine washable. Once you feel that, see it with your own eyes and see it with your own hands, um, a lot of that stuff becomes price point, you know, uh, versatility, all these things become secondary to, do I just like it? Do I feel good in it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we can start to talk about the technology, the versatility, the style, the fashion, any other layer that you care about, sustainability, of course, um, become secondary to, do I like it? Does mm-hmm. it feel good? Right. Uh, and, and you mentioned the stores. So you you started going to stores relatively early. Is that right? What what year did you open the first one? We opened our first store in 2014, so mm-hmm. a couple of years after we started as a brand. Yeah. And so can you talk about you know building the brand online and then moving into the physical space and just kind of like, uh, you know, to your point, and, and obviously we hear this a lot, you see a lot of online brands moving into stores and there's that, you know, very physical element that customers still like. Um, but how did you kind of fit it into your overall growth strategy for, for the brand? Yeah, I mean, stores just are, are such a special, you know, place for us to build true, authentic human relationships. Right? We talk about machine learning or the, you know, the, the AI that's built into our heated jacket. We get so excited about technology. Mm-hmm. But but we we never forget about the idea that this is such a human and emotional business, right? We're in fashion and we love that. And so the best way for us to build those real interpersonal relationships is in the store, to show somebody how a garment is 3D printed by having the actual machine in the store, to have staff who is so incredibly well-educated and and, uh, articulate about what our mission statement is and how that manifests in in X garment uh, has been so, so important to us from nearly day one. I mean, we've, we've long thought that retail was just this incredibly beautiful place to share this deep technology uh, technology story in a very human and relatable way. Mm-hmm. And you, do you think that kind of went against the idea that, okay, people are going to be shopping online now, and, and that's kind of where, as a new startup brand, a consumer brand, we can reach the most people, build you know up, as much um, up as we want. How did... Do you feel like that kind of went against this idea that like, okay, the future of shopping is online um, and, you know, especially having realized it pretty early on? Yeah. Oh, we, we from day one, we're getting all these, okay, we're excited about you guys because you're, you know, this direct to consumer e-com brand. And we said, mm-hmm. none of those actually matter to us at all, right? Where we sell this stuff, how we sell it, whether it's direct, whether it's through partner, none of that is that important to us. We like being direct to customer because it gives us the opportunity to do that education in a way that we can control. Mm -hmm. That said, there are others who are really good at this. We sell product through Stitch Fix. We sell product through the MoMA here Mm -hmm. in New York. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and they're also very good at educating customers in the same way that we enjoy. Uh, But our value proposition is and always will be about the product itself, right? That's what lives on well past how you got it or who you bought it from is what it does for your life. And if we can pack all of the value into that product itself, then everything else is just a decision of what makes the most sense, you know, from a business standpoint and from a convenience standpoint to our customer. And that was the case since you since you launched. It was it was never about that direct channel of selling. That's right. Yeah, it was never direct consumer to cut out the middleman and save on you know all these kind of partner fees. Mm-hmm. The middleman exists for a reason, and sometimes it makes sense, right? And 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 now kind of the what is now kind of cost per acquisition was margin to you know Nordstrom. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all the same, right? The economic models tend to look pretty similar across a lot of brands, uh, but the reality is what differentiates a brand and, and it determines its staying power over 10, 20, 50 years. Yeah, is is its mission. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So you obviously, since 2012, you've you've had you know countless brands start up and like the the value proposition, you know, at least in in some integral way, is like okay, we're doing things better because we have this direct relationship with customers. Like that's been at the very forefront of the of the story. You're getting a better price because we are cutting out the middlemen. Um, so do you think that 
you know, now it's almost going back full circle and, and brands are realizing like at the end of the day, what, what customers are, are loyal to is good products that they like and things that actually fill up like the, the, um, values that they, that they set out to. And so it, it almost seems like people are kind of coming around like, okay, actually like the distribution channel matters a little bit less. Um, do you think that you're going to keep seeing that happen? I think so. I mean, I think, I think what we don't want to lose though, as that starts to happen, where channel becomes more of a matter of kind of convenience, what you don't want to lose is the brand's heart and soul and the personality, right? Whether that's you know exposed directly, you know, through the selling channel, or whether that's exposed exposed indirectly through, let's say, Instagram. Mm-hmm. The brand should have a soul, right? That's something that has become really important to customers, and we think will only continue to grow. And then, secondly, the, a relationship in some form with the customer directly should absolutely continue to grow, right? The idea that we speak everybody at our company speaks to at least 10 customers every year. Most speak to many, many more than that, but directly. We don't have a consumer insights group passing this stuff into our design team, right? Mm-hmm. We have you know, designers, developers uh, that are speaking directly one-to-one with customers, communicating, seeing that raw feedback. And that relationship, whether it becomes a minority of your business or is 100% of your business, that relationship in some way has to be existent and influential in your design and creation process. And that's what we feel like, regardless of the selling channel, protect the brand's personality and soul and protect that direct relationship with a customer in some form. Mm-hmm. And so how do you, as you're, and it, you know, you're selling through other retailers, one, how did you end up in the MoMA? <laughs> <laughs> the MoMA was a special one for us because we kind of grew up shopping at the MoMA, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Stitch Fix as well, a really special partner and that half our team was subscribers, right? So we kind of had this great relationship where we knew both on the other end, right? Mm-hmm. This is where we went to discover new brands, to see what was coming up next, to find out what was exciting and new. And so for us, who are so education-based, so story-based, so product-focused, wanted to limit any wholesale we did, any kind of third-party you know, uh, sales that we did to people who were just as protective of that story, just as protective of the kind of romance around what makes a product great, not just here is product, you should buy it. Mm-hmm. Here's product, let me tell you all about it. You know, We've gone to the MoMA and done deep training sessions. We were at Stitch Fix's office last week to really make sure that they feel the mission, not just the product. Right. And, and to your point around like, okay, um, another retailer might not present, you know, what we're trying to do in the, in the educational way that that's going to help customers make that decision. Um, it, it seems like on the Stitch Fix side, it's, it's almost taking like the context out of, out of shopping multi, multiple brands at a time and, and just letting the product speak on its own. Like how has that sort of helped you guys figure out one, like who your customer is, like how they kind of view the product when it arrives um, and they didn't necessarily select it, but, you know, might be interested in it. Um, you know, I think Stitch Fix as a, as a retail partner for brands is really interesting also because they're, they are so data-based. And so how has that relationship function? Yeah, it's been, it's been a really great relationship with them. I think we, it's only grown over the last couple of years where I think you're right, it's out of context, right? So you're not seeing our pants next to four other pants. You're seeing our pants paired with a shirt that may not be ours mm-hmm. that, that they can see as possible. And I think that's a really big unlock for us where we don't claim to ever want to own 100% of your closet. We like the idea of being, we always say the 50% of your closet you wear 80% of the time. We make staples. We make blues, grays, whites, blacks, neutrals. Uh, we recognize that wardrobes have more than that. And I think Stitch Fix through their data algorithms do too. And I think if we can find a way to really integrate into the wider fashion ecosystem in a graceful way that they've proposed, it is only to the benefit of our customer, right? So whether mm-hmm. they want to come to us and shop at other brands directly as well, or if they want someone else to help them do that, we're indifferent. Again, it comes back to us saying, if you think you have a favorite shirt in the world and we can be the pants that match it, we're super happy about that. You know, you should continue to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think Stitch Fix unlocks and opens up that possibility. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back. Have you ever wondered what's actually in the perfume that you spritz on every day? That's why I'm so excited to introduce you to Fleur. 
They make stunning, non-toxic perfumes and list all of their ingredients online. For luxurious perfume that's all about good, clean fun, try Fleur. That's P-H-L-U-R. With Fleur, you can discover each scent on their website through pictures, words, and even playlists. They also offer sample kits so you can see which scent is right for you in your life. Every Fleur scent is gender-free. And the best part, Fleur is a completely transparent fragrance company. They tell you every ingredient in their perfumes and why it's there. Go to Fleur.com slash Glossy today to get 20% off your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Glossy. Now back to the episode. And so have you entertained the idea of selling through more traditional department stores? Absolutely. We, we, love, um, we love storytellers. And so when we find department stores, boutiques, you know, pro shops, it, it, it doesn't matter if you're selling product, we're, we're in for a conversation with one criteria, right? And that's that you care about the product, that we can come on site and share with your team. We can supply the whole team with product, that we can get everyone excited about what this product is there for and what it unlocks, right? Again, this Q spirit of enabling someone to go achieve something bigger, right? That they didn't leave the office and go home to change, that they instead went out with friends for you know drinks or dinner, right? This versatility you alluded to mm-hmm. has a big unlock on people's lives. And if they feel that deeper mission, then then we're all about it. Right. And so to your point, so you said like you'll you'll have the team wear the clothing. Is that is that normal? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question. Most retailers are very open to it. Uh-huh. Most brands don't take them up on that. Uh-huh. Uh, and so for us in the, in the few situations we have gone down this path have gone the extreme level of let's be on site. Let's train your team. Let's outfit them. Let's get them excited. Uh, take as much free product as you want because you should understand it. Our, our biggest you know uh, nightmare would be just clothing on a rack. No mm-hmm. sign, no education, no romance around it, no storytelling, just kind of flipping through pants and UCRs and you keep flipping mm-hmm. is the the one thing we want to avoid. Right. And and so how has that helped to basically translate the the brand and, and everything that it does to you know, to that middleman and then to the end customer that's not you know going to the brand directly. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, so far I think we've been super fortunate in that they they, they seem to be so story focused, so education focused, uh, maniacally so, just like us. And so, fortunately, to date, there hasn't been a lost in translation. You know, us to Stitch Fix to customer, us to MoMA to customer, us to Birchbox to customer, mm. hasn't ever lost a message in translation. But I think it's a really good question as we start to expand that. How do we protect that? How do we continue to do that with retailers that may not be as open to that? Do we have the discipline to move away from those partnerships? Those are things we think about a lot. Right. Uh, and so, in, in speaking of new new areas of, of growth, so, I, you know, I, I would think probably one of the bigger jumps that the brand made was introducing women's clothing. Um, so, so, how did you make that transition? Obviously, I think, you know, from a pure numbers perspective, if you can reach the other half of the population, that, that's going to be good for business. But how did you go about doing it in a way that that made sense? And, and you know, I think what the tricky part is, is starting as a men's brand and then switching that, that, that flip in someone flipping that switch in someone's mind that says, okay, this is actually for women too. Yeah, I think that's such a good question. You know, we had always intended from the start to, to be a you know a, a, a open to any gender. And uh, and so it just took us a while to, to build that out, right? Because like I said, we, we start this process up off with a really deep set of data, right? Again, how do you expel you know heat? How does your temperature actually fluctuate in different circumstances? How, do you, how does your skin stretch, right? And we had to understand that now for women, right, to enter this market. So it did take us almost four years from launch. In 2016, we launched Women's. Mm. Um, but we've always thought that the, the mission here has no gender, right? The mission being unlocking kind of productivity that we want. Our life's work is to kind of open up your life's work. 
And uh, and if that's true, that has no gender tied to it. So it was mm-hmm. never a question of if but when, and it was never a question of why at all. The mission seemed to really fit and resonate with the person who was super intentional and thoughtful about what they wear and how that impacts their day uh, could, could be any gender. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so being where you are now uh, with the perspective of, of seven years um, and, and also the, you know, how, how much noise has grown up in, in the direct-to-consumer category overall, how do you plan to, or at least how are you now, like rising above that noise and, and continue to stand out, driving customer loyalty, but also introducing the, the brand to new customers? Um, you know, what all has to go into that in order to stay ahead of the competition? Yeah, I think one of the things we, we used to answer that question with, uh, here's our four next initiatives. Here's a you know a bit of a game of one-upsmanship, right? Like we're introducing stretch threads, which people haven't thought of yet, right? Mm-hmm. And these are things that we've done over the last seven years to really perfect the idea of a really graceful marriage between form and function, between engineering and fashion. Uh, today, I think our, our focus is just on continuing to make better and, and better product. So it's not just about, you know, here's a new feature we're introducing, right? It's, it's let's really make consistent fits. Let's make beautiful product that truly does everything we say it's going to do. And let's build up trust customer by customer, handshake by handshake, hug by hug. Let's really make those human relationships come to life so that when people say, I need a new blank, their first instinct is, I trust Ministry of Supply to have made that and to done, have done the diligence. So we focus as much on educating people about the process behind it. Again, back to this idea of peeling back the onion so they understand why they should trust us being much more important than just kind of, here's a new feature, here's a new item. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, you know, I think we will continue to grow in, in every dimension that we've proposed from the start. Right? Our clothing will be even more wrinkle-free, you know, and even more sustainable. Right? So all these kind of drums we've been beating from day one will continue to be important to us, mm-hmm. just in louder, bigger, and, and better ways. Yeah, and that's that's interesting. And then is um, Ministry of Supply venture backed? We are. We are. We've been uh, we've been really fortunate to have just an incredible set of investors over the course of the last seven years. They've just been super kind of kind to our mission. Right? They've never come in and tried to change it or said, "Hey, are you sure about this?" You know, uh, we had some folks early on when we would pitch investors saying. You've had these beautiful fabrics that you spent years developing. Why don't you just license the fabrics and sell them to other companies? Mm. And uh, and those are not our investors. Mm-hmm, um, right. <laughs> and, and we were just kind of careful to find people who were believers from the start. Right. And and you know, I think a big uh, piece of, of where venture-backed brands are spending those resources because of how crowded the market is, is on marketing. Like, it, it almost, especially more crowded categories, I think, you know, fashion is not necessarily one of the most crowded, but you have a lot of players, um, you know, competing for this, this new customer, they're on the go, like they, they need new, um, you know, things out of their clothing. But, you know, if you're in a very crowded category, it's about rising to the top. And and a lot of times that takes more, more spend, um, but then it's almost a race to the bottom. Um, So how have you gone about a marketing strategy that, you know, resonates with the customer that you're, you're looking for, um, but is also competitive, uh, you know, against people who might have, you know, somewhat similar missions or at least targeting the same people? It's such a good question. I mean, I think you're, you're totally right on the race to the bottom part. I think that's really well phrased. It, that's exactly what it is. You're, you're buying these cost per click CPAs and, and it, someone referred to, said CPA is the new rent, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, that's the online version of paying rent and mm-hmm. having this real estate on Facebook or Instagram or Google. And it's terrifying just to play that game, right? If you just continue to pour money in and try to figure out the right audiences, you have to do that, right? I, 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 by no means would I suggest that we don't do that. And we play the playbook, but where we spend so much of our time and effort to get off of that and to not just feel like we're another fish in the sea is we focus so much on the product and storytelling behind it, right? Mm-hmm. So where we're less focused on, in fact, we outsource a lot of the actual ad placement. Uh, where that goes, we're fairly indifferent. Where we spend all of our time in-house on 
is of course product creation development, but also on the storytelling. So the you know content creation. How do we show this in a really unique and special way? That the content is how we can rise above the fold, displaying the beauty of the product itself, rather than we found arbitrage on you know LinkedIn advertising mm-hmm. and some new platform or you know Snapchat advertising that we you know it's not looking for cl- click arbitrage, it's looking for kind of con- content advantages. Right. So that's so all of the the content copy that's done in house. Yeah. How, yeah. how big is the team? We are a team of we're about. 45 strong, mm-hmm. um, and we, we certainly develop a lot of time, resources, and attention to content creation. We have we have not a huge office, and a good portion of it is do- dedicated to a photo video studio. So mm-hmm. if that gives you a sense on how much we care, then a good portion of obviously is there's product everywhere. If you right. came into our office, you were just flooded with product, mm-hmm. um, and you feel this kind of sense of, okay, let's make a beautiful product, and then let's tell it an incredible story about why we made it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's interesting. One, one thing that I keep thinking about is how, you know, it, you hate to use the word disruption, but it was almost about, you know, for a lot of these brands at the beginning, reinventing the wheel and kind of wearing that like disruptor badge as this, you know, playing card for the competitive advantage. And that would attract customers. They were interested in something new. And that was just so core to the strategy. Um, You know, it sounds like like for you guys, it was never really about rethinking how clothing was distributed or how people shopped or, you know, the store experience versus online. Um, So do you think that, you know, it's almost less about in terms of the strategy for new brands in particular, like what's going to win attention? Um, you know, how do you consider like where people shop, how that's going and, and how brands need to like what what do brands need to change and what should brands just be like, OK, this is how it is and we can fit into this and do it our way. But we don't have to like overspend to, to disrupt the system. Yeah, I, I like this question a lot because I think there's so many things that were, you know, whether it became working culture at a startup or go-to-market strategy for you know, this new disruptor brand. There were so many things we thought about, you know, that had staying power that were correct, right? Mm-hmm. In, in ways that we disrupted, or we meaning the collective, we have kind of disruptor brands, as they were, you know, cliche named. Um, and, and, and there were things that were just wrong, right? So there's this idea, like I said, uh, we met, mentioned earlier, this idea of taking a strong stance on we're never going to make a store and we're never going to sell through anybody else. It's kind of it's a, a weird stance to take in hindsight because mm-hmm. it's just a channel, right? It's not right. the actual value proposition shouldn't be cutting the middleman because the second that becomes ubiquitous, you've lost your advantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so over over the course of the last several years, we've figured out certain things that do matter, right? So the idea of, I mean, I, I, I jokingly can now say the shirt we released in 2012 was an engineering marvel. It was perfect. It was 19 times more breathable than a traditional dress shirt. It was machine washable, um, but it was ugly. It was not an attractive shirt. And uh, and that was because it was made by a bunch of engineers, right? We hired on shortly after the former design director of Theory and, and the former design director at Brooks Brothers, who is still with us very much today um, as our design director. And uh, and it was one of those things where we realized early on, you, you can't ignore that fashion is emotion, right? Mm. That fashion has, first and foremost, you don't care what's under the hood uh, unless you know, the car is beautiful, right? No one cares about it at Tesla's engine unless it, it looks good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so similarly for us, we've had these things where we thought, okay, well, we're going to ignore that because we're the disruptors. We get to make our own rules. And I think pretty quickly you enter this scene in this setting and you realize, well, there are certain rules that exist for a reason, right? There are certain rules that we probably should have and we should be respectful of and we should acknowledge that, hey, fashion is, is do I look good, mm-hmm. right? And the first thing someone does when they try our stuff on, they walk to a mirror. The second thing, they stretch their arms, right? And they realize, oh, there's a lot there's a lot here, right? right. And it's in that order every single time. Mm-hmm. You can't hack that uh, that no. emotional feeling No, of you it. can't, right? <laughs> that, that's something that's special and, and human and timeless. Right. And, and so, you know, looking ahead is when 
like the bar could potentially keep being raised on like the quality of the product and, and the technical fabrics that that you're using. Um, where have have partnerships come in? Like I, you know, I think something that's really interesting in this category um, and that you kind of spoke about is like this open source um, approach in fashion to sustainability or just competitive um, advantages that are less a little bit opening up uh, because brands see the advantages of, you know, sharing partners that are working with them on new types of sustainable materials and, and things like that. And so when you think about, you know, that piece of, you know, who can we, who can we partner the, with on this? Like, how do we kind of make this bigger than ourselves while continuing to improve our products on that? Like, how do you sort of fit that into your strategy? Yeah, I think for, you know, for us, partnerships have been so critical. Uh, you know, both kind of uh, softer partnerships where it's us advising or receiving advice from similar brands, right? So, if, you know, when it comes to our pursuit of, of, of eliminating our carbon footprint, there's mm-hmm. a lot of math that goes into that. We're happy to share that math, right, as we approach that or, or learn from other people's math, right? right? Let's share that out there. Let's tell you exactly what goes into our products. Let's tell you what factory we make it in. Let's show you pictures and images of it. Let's introduce you to the factory if you want. Um, and then some more structured partnerships, like right now we're working with MIT on shape-changing materials, right? There was a, a great article we put out recently about active textile tailoring, and this is kind of breathability in, in the most incredible sense. Right? So it's kind of a one step almost above machine learning where it's actually responding to how your skin works. Mm-hmm. And so it's you know a, a beautiful partnership with MIT to help unlock this where we get to use their labs, their facilities in ways that we couldn't do. And they get to use our commercial you know abilities that bring something to market that they can't do. Mm-hmm. And by creating this kind of ecosystem where we have these great partners out there, we can, we can again, take the same core belief performance professional but continue to elevate it to new heights. Right. Um, and we're, we're almost out of time, but I guess, you know, just to your point earlier, like you can't take the emotion out of fashion, but where do you think fashion is, is on its way to getting smarter? And, and what do you think customers are going to be looking for um, that will turn them on to new brands? Uh, like where is this performance piece going to fit? Um, you know, because I think, you know, there's probably still a good portion of people who don't even really know, like it's an option that their clothes can fit in and perform better. And so where does that, uh, trajectory, you know, where do you see that going? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we from the start, talk, talked about this phrase from the new normal, right? And I think for us, we see so many brands following suit in just a tiny little way. We've put 2% spandex into X line of suits that we make, you know, mm-hmm. and it's 1% of their suits and it's 1% of that suit uh, or that, you know, women's blouse or that, you know, that dress, whatever it ends up being. And we are so deadly convinced that this is the new normal. We are so sure of it that in five or 10 years, you'll you'll find it impossible to go to a store and find something that is lacking in some level of performance, right? We, as a, as a culture, have this casualization of our where-to-work wardrobe that allows for, you know, boardroom to bar to exist. It's kind of nine to nine to happen, right? All these cliche statements mm-hmm. of, like, you know, my whole day. Right. <laughs> um, and because of that casualization of what we can wear to work and because of that demand for versatility, and because we've been so trained by athleisure to think comfort first often or, or comfort equal to fashion, mm-hmm. that this will be absolutely kind of the, the new normal. And we're so sure of it. So our kind of ask of the industry is to jump in head first, right? Don't make this one line, one product, one skew, 1%, uh, mm-hmm. but actually just to go in head first. And that's where we think our advantage is being born with 100% all in on, on performance professional. Right. right. Great. And do you ever plan on going into your own athleisure? Yeah, we, uh, we we dabble. We love uh-huh. testing and playing. So if you came to our office, which we would invite anyone to, uh, in, including all your listeners, we would say, come on by, take a look. You would find it fascinating, the amount of weird things we have prototyped just for fun. Interesting. Yeah. All right. No, we'll yeah. see what comes out of it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. 
We hope you enjoyed the episode. A special thanks to Gianna Cappadona, the producer of this podcast. As a thank you for listening, we're passing along a limited time introductory offer on a three-month subscription to Glossy Plus. Glossy Plus members access unlimited stories, exclusive research, and more. Join today for just $49. That's $80 off by entering the code intro at checkout at glossy.co slash subscribe. And as always, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Anchor FM and leave us any feedback you have.